Well, do please turn in your Bibles to the last installment of this wonderful letter. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, page 962 in the church Bibles. 1 Corinthians 16. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, that is, God's people around the world, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there'll be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I'll send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When or if Timothy comes... See that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He'll come when he has the opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the households of Stephanus were literally the first fruits in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they've made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches in Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you many greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hands. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm sorry if it is an awkward question, but how are you at kissing? We have one aunt in the family who is famous for her kisses. There is no escaping them. If you make the fatal error of eye contact, then she will get your head in a vice-like grip, and it's as if you're sucked in by gravity. Full lip-to-lip -lip engagement for at least three seconds. And let me tell you, three seconds is a very long time. 
Once or twice when our girls have been at each other like cats and dogs, it's inspired our family's most cruel and unusual of punishments. You see, the kids have learned what many Christian kids learn, and that is how to say things like, I'm sorry, and I forgive you. With a look on their face, that really means I am going to murder you the moment I get the opportunity. And we've discovered that that look is very hard to maintain once you're forced to give each other a big sloppy kiss. A three-second smacker really does change things. Now, granted, making two squabbling kids pucker up is like forcing two negative poles to touch. It is almost impossible, but once they've been through that together, it is quite a bonding experience. And even the grumpiest child finds it hard not to laugh. Well, I've heard a few talks on the holy kiss in my time, and almost always they've been as an example of reading the Bible in its cultural context. So we all understand, the talks go, when Paul says greet one another with a holy kiss, the appropriate application would be a firm British handshake. Well, yes, kind of. But I wonder if that does justice to what an extraordinary way this is to end this letter of all letters how would it have sounded to them? We've met them. We've been with them now for a year. How would that have sounded to them? My squabbling girls would be quite happy giving each other a handshake. But kiss that? No way. Isn't that Corinth? There's a good chunk of this church that are quite practiced at kissing themselves in the mirror. But kiss that? That puffed-up, super-spiritual, pseudo-philosopher, that poorly-dressed, unspiritual, shallow-fundamentalist, no way. And so what a delicious way this is to end his letter. It's as if Paul says to them, pucker up, buttercup. Almost always, you look at the endings to Paul's letters, and they seem like the tedious notices shoehorned into church, loads of random formalities you're just trying to get out the way, which frankly don't belong in a worship service, and anyway, everyone stop listening by now. But the more you get your head inside the letter, the more you see how these endings are actually something very different. They are pulling together all the loose threads what are the big themes of this final chapter? Well, it's who you love, who you recognize, and who you follow. Love is the obvious one because Paul ends with such a shocking statement. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be damned, cursed. But love has been the issue right through this letter, hasn't it? Sometimes in big poetic ways, sometimes in very practical, down-to-earth ways. And this last chapter starts with one of those, love in practice, in our giving. It ends with something much more grabby and explicit, love for the Lord and for his people. Then there's the issue of who we recognize, who we accept. That's been another massive sticking point, hasn't it? Can you accept one another as brothers? Not just the preachers who impress you or the Christians with gifts or money or status, but the preachers who look like Paul and the Christians who cling to the cross and nothing more than that. Well, did he spot how that same idea of recognition tops and tails this last chapter? Verse 3, pick people you trust, you accredit, 
and let them handle the money. Verse 18, give recognition to these kinds of people. And finally, who you follow. Time and again in chapter 16, Paul drops in these little reminders of that central bone of contention. The ones he wants the Corinthians to recognize are the ones following him. Sometimes literally, verse 4, they can accompany me on the road to Jerusalem when I follow where my master trod. Sometimes, like Timothy, it's more substantial. Timothy, verse 10, is doing the work of the Lord. That same phrase we had last week, he's doing just the same sort of stuff I'm doing. But what about Stephanus and his house? Well, they were the first fruits of the province. Already there's a link there, isn't there, to what we were told about Jesus? These guys are the first fruits of the first fruit. And more than that, they are Paul's fellow workers, laborers. It's that same laboring, toiling for the gospel word he used at the end of chapter 15. These are the guys who are up to their necks in the not in vain stuff. They are following me as I follow Jesus. It looks bitty, this chapter. They always do at first, but it is incredibly carefully put together. What does real love for the Lord Jesus look like? He's asking them. Well, it looks like everything. You don't find that impressive in me. Real love for the Lord means overflowing in his generous, gracious care for his people and recognizing those guys who do the same. So suck up your self-interest and give each other a big old kiss and listen to those leaders in your church who are modeling the real thing. We'll break it into three this morning. He starts by talking about love with a cost. He ends by showing them love with a kiss. But the bite comes in the middle, I think. The love you don't recognize in the people who are showing it right under your nose. So who will you follow? First verses one to nine, follow me and love with a cost. Two classic bits of church notice material here, some practical arrangements for an offering and then some travel plans. But the two are actually very joined up. What Paul wants to see in them is exactly the same thing he's modeling in his own plans costly love. First, the collection, money being collected for Jerusalem. So presumably it's the same collection for poor Jewish believers hit by famine that we see elsewhere in the New Testament. But Paul doesn't really tell us the details. He doesn't pull on their heartstrings. Whatever it was for, they know the need. Instead, he just says, verse 1, do the same thing as everyone else. Isn't that interesting? No special arrangements for Corinth. Just do what I told the Galatians to do. It's a funny thing with money, but we often feel like our gift is special. It deserves its own special handling. But no, you're a high-profile church. You've got some very wealthy members, but you're no different to Christians anywhere else. And that means you need to love beyond yourselves. There's something unhealthy about a church where all of our pooled giving gets spent internally on ourselves. But isn't this a beautiful picture of the gospel? Gentile churches around the world 
giving to their Jewish mother church. I often spend my study leave in the deep south in the US where church is very divided. There are black churches and white churches, and there are still memories of the day when the ancestors of one church owned the ancestors of another church. Imagine a majority black church hearing about some awful tragedy in the posh white church uptown and pouring out their wallets in love. What a beautiful picture of the gospel that would be. Even where there are massive divides of culture and language and class, no church is a little spiritual island. We owe each other love. We have an eternity to look forward to together with the very people being fed and clothed and trained right now in North India with the teeny loose coins from the bottom of our wallets. And that giving is part of our worship. Did you spot that? I wonder if that's how we think of it. Set that money aside on the first day of every week, the Lord's Day, planned. Don't make me squeeze it out of you when I come. This should just be a normal, straightforward, unembarrassed part of your Christian worship. It's a bit hard to remember that now, isn't it? Because all of our giving is kind of hidden. We don't have an offering plate. Our tithes go in online. But our giving is a worshipful act. It helps at least when we pray for it, as Peter today, to remember on a Sunday that this is what we're doing together. It's a response to God's grace. It should make our hearts sing just as much as the music does. It's worship. And so giving has to be planned and it has to be proportionate to how the Lord has lovingly prospered us. Notice he doesn't give them a number. Just give as the Lord has prospered you. Yes, the Old Testament said a ballpark. That's where this basic principle of proportionality comes from. There was a 10% tithe on our income. But Jesus showed us that those sorts of rules were really always about our hearts. Any number is just and only was ever a bare minimum. If it was 10% back then, how much more for the people of Jesus? What is a fitting response to the one who laid down his life and gave you everything? Planned, proportionate to his grace, and finally personal. Paul wants people, not just cash, doesn't he? Take responsibility for it, he's saying. Accredit some guys that you trust and then send them with the money. People belong with cash. It should be relational. If it works out, they can come with me. At its best, we should develop relationships with the people we give to. We should take responsibility for it. And look how Paul models all the same thing, love, costliness, care, how he models that in his own plans. He loves them. He's clearly worried about them. He wants to spend time with them, but not yet, verse 8, because there's a cost that Paul has to pay. The gospel comes first. I will stay in Ephesus where, metaphorically or otherwise, he talked about being thrown to the beasts, the lions. Why will I stay there? Because there is a wide open door for the gospel and many foes. 
And those enemies aren't a reason to give in the towel. That's often how we think, isn't it? No. They're the reason to stay. Paul has hearts to win and a cross to bear. So do you see what he's saying? Follow me. Because real love costs. In fact, verse 6, this time, I might even let you pay in to my ministry. That's the thing he's refused to let them do up till now, isn't it? It's been a bit of a sticking point. First, they needed to learn that they were receivers, not big, impressive donors. But are you ready now for Project Paul to help me on my journey and take this message of the cross to the world? Follow me. And then verses 10 to 18, do you notice this string of other Christian workers he brings up who are on board with precisely the same project? Others like Timothy to help on their way because it's the same mission. And by the sounds of it, up till now, the Corinthians haven't wanted to give some of these people the time of day. And so verses 10 to 18, he says, follow them. Recognize the love right under your nose. Follow them. What would it really look like in Corinth if they were to grasp the message of this letter and to change? Well, here are three ministries that would start to look very different in their eyes. There's the guy they don't want, the guy they're desperate to have, and the guys who are actually in their lives week by week. And right in the middle of it all, verses 13 and 14, this little punchy exhortation that drives home the examples. The guy they don't want is Timothy. And although Paul loves them, do you see how he's not pandering to them here? They think they deserve a big apostle, but he has gospel work to get on with in Ephesus. And so for now, he sends along trusty Timothy, the understudy. Now, they know Timothy well. He was there with Paul when Paul planted the church. And ironically, the real problem with Timothy is that he is no different to Paul. He's doing just the same work of the Lord as me, verse 10, the not in vain, focused on the future, death, then resurrection kind of ministry that Paul was talking about last time. Poor Timothy has to come to Corinth as Paul's enforcer And he told them back in chapter 4, they were to look at him and be reminded of all Paul's ways in Jesus. He's nothing but an imitation. And that is all he's meant to be. Sometimes I think we've got a similar attitude here. I've heard it enough times in Scotland. A guest preacher comes, and one or two folk will roll their eyes and say, it's another Tron guy. It's another Chalmers guy as if we were getting the lackey, the understudy, the cookie cutter. Well, we train people in those churches for a reason, don't we? There's a model of gospel ministry we want them to absorb. And it was Paul's method, his model, that the Corinthians needed to get on board with, not just the message. And that's why poor Timothy is stressed out of his mind, verse 10, about the thought of this visit, because he knows that method looks very dull and unimpressive to them. So put him at ease and don't despise him. No, help him on his way in peace so that he can come back and carry on following me. Do you see that? Get behind the guy who's following me as I follow Jesus. 
Then in verse 12, there's the guy they're desperate to have. Apollos, it seems, had wowed them with his words when he was last in town. We know that he was a fantastic, charismatic preacher, so much so that there was a whole I follow Apollos clique in church now. They love Apollos. But doesn't this verse say so much about his character and so much about Paul's? How big those men must have been. Look at verse 12. You'd imagine Paul's ego would have wanted for anything but Apollos to come again and dazzle them once more. Paul refused to talk the big talk, refused to impress them with anything beyond the cross, and they despise him for it, just as they despise Timothy. How much easier it would have been then just to keep Apollos away. I once heard of a pastor who always plans the most boring preachers he can find for his holidays, just so the church is a little bit more grateful when he comes back. Well, that is not the Apostle Paul, is it? Because although he is the model for the Corinthians, he isn't there just to build up his own fan club. He wants a church in love with Jesus. So he urges Apollos to go. If he'll win their hearts, great. This time it's Apollos who seems anything but keen. Maybe he's learned a hard lesson. And the last thing he wants to do is rush back now and press all their buttons. And then finally, verses 15 to 18, there's the guys they actually have, the ones right under their nose, ministering the gospel to them week after week. Stephanus and presumably two members of his household with Latin names that sounds like they were maybe former slaves. So one wealthy, two pretty ordinary, and all of them, verse 15, devoted to the service of the saints. What did Jesus say? Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, devoted to service, slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Yuck. Yuck. It is so ordinary. Laborers. That is a horrid word. Yuck. The sort of word that really does look like it is all in vain to the Corinthians. So ordinary, and yet so deeply loving. And look what it does, verse 17. They refreshed my soul. I rejoiced when they came to see me. They made up for everything that was absent in you. Isn't that lovely? Even... The great apostle needed a bit of encouragement sometimes, and when he was feeling a little unloved and weary with the cost, these ordinary gospel-minded guys came to see him, and it made his heart rejoice again. Well, those are the kind of guys you should recognize, verse 18, not just the fancy gifted ones, guys like this. And verse 16, those are the kind of leaders you need to submit to. Stop insisting on your own way and recognize the ones who don't demand recognition. Be subject to the ones who are servants. What should we see then 
in leaders like that? Well, you'll see two things right together. Love and strength, hand in hand. Real strength is loving, and real love is strong. Isn't that what it must have taken for Timothy to make yet another journey to Corinth? Isn't that what it must have taken Apollos to say, no, I won't go and impress them? Isn't that what it must have taken for Stephanus to pastor a church like this? And isn't that how Paul has been himself all through this letter? What a horrible thing this has been to write. And yet he has grasped every single nettle, their pride and their cliques, their disgust at him, their attitude to each other, their sexual sin, their worship wars. Put together, that would kill any pastor I've ever met. And yet still, Paul is calling them beloved. And isn't that how Jesus was? Full of love, deeply loving, and yet intensely, uncompromisingly strong. Well, pan out a little bit. And what is the message of the whole thing? Verse 13, be watchful. Jesus has not returned yet. You are meant to be a waiting people. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith, the true faith, the one I've modeled to you. Act like men. Be strong. Deal with those areas of church life that need a bit of repentance. Be strong. And let all of that be done in love. Now, the Corinthians are good at strong, aren't they? That's been their favorite word. It's one of their buzzwords. They divide the whole church into strong and weak, have and have not, gifted and unspiritual. They are very strong on strong, but it's not at all a Jesus kind of strength because none of their strong, impressive Christianity is done in love. So they need leaders in Corinth who will grasp the nettles, who will do the hard, loving thing and keep on applying the cross right where they need it applied. The ones they know, like Timothy, ordinary Timothy and Stephanus. Follow them, recognize them, the love right under your nose. And then finally, verses 19 to 24, love with a kiss. Follow us. Follow us Christians all over the world who are bursting with genuine affection for you. Isn't it a humbling thing to know there are churches we have never heard of praying hard for us? It's true. We have saints in Glasgow and Dundee and Stirling on their knees together for Edinburgh North Church every other Wednesday, full of genuine affection. Well, that's what Paul shows them, isn't it, as he closes? Christians all over Roman Asia, sending them hearty greetings, many greetings, bursting with affection for them in the Lord. The ones they know, like Aquila and Prisca and others they've never met, they love you. So verse 20 can't you do the same for one another? Pucker up, buttercup. You have been accepted by Jesus and loved by his church. 
It's time to show a bit of that yourselves. And then Paul snatches the pen off Paul, Paul Sosthenes or whoever his scribe has been because he has to put these last words in his own hands. It's genuine affection, isn't it? Even now. What is it people used to write sometimes on the back of the envelope? Swelk, sealed with a loving kiss. Remember that? It's such a silly, overblown sort of gesture, kissing the envelope, signing off in your own hand. But it's so human. I want you guys to know I really do love you. I'm invested. This is my own scrawl. And what does he say? His last urgent, most personal, loving thing he has to say to them. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. That is really what this is all about. It couldn't be more serious. Brothers and sisters, he says, the way you act towards each other and towards those trying to lead you, it terrifies me. Because if Christians can't love each other, you really do have to ask if they truly love Jesus. And what is a Christian who doesn't love Christ? A cursed thing. Cut off from life and hope and eternity. Come, Lord Jesus. He hates having to write like this, doesn't he? Come, Lord Jesus. Have mercy on us. Put everything right. We are still so far from where we want to be. We haven't arrived. Come, Lord Jesus. But you see how high the stakes are in this letter? Ultimately, it's doctrinal. It's about what we truly believe. Do we believe that Jesus died and rose for me and he is reigning now and he will come again and he deserves all my heart? Or do we only want to give him a bit of it, a little sliver of our love? Paul is so black and white, isn't he? You can't have a bit of love for Jesus. Either he gave everything for you and he claims your all, or you do not love the Lord. Do you really still believe the gospel? Behind how they behave towards one another, there's what they believe about Jesus and their attitude to him. That's what this is about. Ultimately, everything boils down to what we believe. It's doctrinal. Now, Paul could have just written saying, Dear Corinth, repent and believe the gospel. And Christians today would read it and we'd all agree, sure, that's what those people back then needed to do. But he hasn't written like that, has he? He's written a letter about their love. It is much more subtle and exposing. But this has been a letter that applies Jesus' cross to them in real, concrete terms, right at the precise point their lives deny it, so that there's no escape. And even the last two verses make that point. Wouldn't verse 23 be a great place to end? Yes, Jesus is coming to rescue and judge, but he is full of grace, even for Corinthians. He died for you, so his grace is with you. You see, he's not asking for perfect love from them. Jesus is so full of grace that there is always a way back. He's asking for our hearts. Wouldn't that be a great place to end the letter, a normal place? But there's another verse, and it's all about Paul. 
What an odd thing to add. My love be with you too, in him, even now. Just think how right Paul would have been to fester away with bitterness and hurt. He's been made to write this letter. He's going to write an even worse one soon. He has poured years of his life into this church, wasted it on them, while he's been abused and sidelined and passed over for something more exciting. But he knows that love poured out like that is precisely what is not in vain. Even now, I love you so deeply because you and I belong to the same Lord who loves us all. You see, Christ's grace and his people's love belong together. You can't take one and reject the other. So follow me, your ordinary apostle. It's time to put aside your differences and give each other a big smacker of a kiss and get on with my pattern of Christian ministry as I take up my cross and follow the one who died for me. Well, let's bow our heads and pray that we might do the same. Gracious Lord Jesus, who is more full of costly love towards us than we will ever know, more full of love than we are of sin. We love you, Lord. Help us in our lack of love. Fill us, we pray, with generous, welcoming hearts towards those you've redeemed that we know can only come to us through a deepening of your grace in us. Help us to recognize those whose lives and ministries are shaped by your cross. Help us, we pray, to rejoice in the privilege of following you together. Help us do it all to the praise of your grace and your name. Amen.